You know, I heard that there was um, five, have you ever heard that there are five different love languages? It was popularized by an author named Dr. Gary Chapman, probably still really popular today. Um, apparently, the five different love languages are um, words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And the study that he did showed that everybody likes those things to some extent, but everybody has one or two that they really, really like. I always thought the way to a man's heart was through his stomach. <laughs> I always thought there were six different love languages, but I'm not a, a doctor. <laughs> That's my love language. Whatever it is, generally there's a way that you tend to show that you care about somebody or show that you love somebody. And there is a greatest way. Am I just screwing things up here? Just leave it. According to John... No, just leave it. I wanted it like this. I appreciate active service. Is that your love language? <laughs> so... According to John 15, 13, it says this. John 15, 13 says this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So we know that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the greatest act of love, right? That's not one of Gary Chapman's five love languages or Eric Baldwin's love language, but it is... It is the greatest act of love that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. You can't even imagine a greater act of love, right? Well, the story of Jesus' life, according to Apostle John, we've been going through the book of John, it actually makes a giant leap from chapter 12 to chapter 13. So if you've been with us this year, we've been going through the book of John, and we get to John chapter 12, and it's like uh, the, what we know majority of Jesus' life. Well, the second half of the book, like, it slows way down. If you're looking at, like, it's not, like, written like an autobiography, okay? The gospel accounts weren't written like that because the last, you know, half of the book is five days. So it really turns the page here from chapter 12 to chapter 13. And now we are in the final week of Jesus' life where he says, the hour is near. Up until now, we've heard the hour has not yet arrived, but now it says the hour had come to, for him to depart from the world in John 13.1. It's the final week of his life. The hour has come. The Passover meal is at hand, and the disciples are gathered together one final time. They don't realize it or not, and there are different ideas of, is this the last meal? Is this the, the final, final meal, or is this just a meal throughout the week? Uh, either way, I don't think it really, it's hard to mesh this story in the book of John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke stories exactly. Like, we don't know exactly if it's the final meal. It really doesn't have an impact on what Jesus is teaching through his actions right here. Okay, so don't get hung up on, is this Thursday night, or is this Tuesday night, or Wednesday night? It's a meal. I think it, it really is Thursday, um, and I think there, there's some reasons for that, but Either way, the disciples don't realize that Jesus is only a day or two away from his arrest and away from his trial and away from his death on the cross. So there's a lot that's going to happen between John 13 and his arrest. There's going to be a lot of 
teaching. There's a long prayer that we're going to get to called the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus' prayer for us. And we're going to get to that. I'm looking forward to that. But So this whole teaching, which traditionally was, was done in the upper room, scholars call this the upper room discourse from chapter 13 to chapter 17. So it's one big thing, in case you're like taking notes to write a book or something. It's called the upper room discourse is what it's called. And he begins this final part of his life with this immense act of love, this immense act of amazing service that points forward to his upcoming sacrifice as the Lamb of God. And what Jesus does, as was just read, is that he washes his disciples' feet. And there are really two levels to what's taking place right now. There's the actual action of Jesus, and there's the spiritual reality to which it points. So to summarize, we could say that Jesus shows his love by washing us totally clean, and then he calls us to follow his example in humble service to others. Jesus shows his love by washing us totally clean and then calls us to follow his example in humble service to others. So let's look at your Bibles in John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Because it says here, this is before the Feast of the Passover, either a day before or an hour before. It's before the Feast of the Passover. I mean, before the celebration that's coming. And Jesus knows that his time is near. And so having loved his own, it says, who his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. One of the themes that goes on, one of the themes that we see in the last few chapters of John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is the idea of the world comes up a lot. It's like Jesus wants to make a distinction between the world and his disciples. Now we know that God loves the world, right? John three sixteen for God so loved the world. And that is a general love that God is love, and God shows his love. But Jesus wants to make the point that God has a particular kind of love, a specific, a special kind of love for those who are his own. And it says he loved his own to the end. So as Jesus prepared to lay down his life, he was preparing to give, uh, his death on the cross was an atonement, not for the whole world, but for his own, whom those whom he's already talked about, whom the Father has given to him. Jesus' love for his sheep, and he was this was manifested to the very end, he says. Now, loving them to the end, loving his own to the end can mean the end of his own life, or it can also be translated, love them to the uttermost, or love them to perfection. His act of dying for them is going to be the act that brings his own sheep into the fold. And so, that's what he is about to do, showing his love to the very end of his life. So, verse 2, it says, During supper... When the devil had already put it into his into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So this is the point now where Jesus knew that the devil's plans were already set into motion. The devil had his plan, and he already set it in motion. He had already uh, put it into Judas's heart, and Judas had already given himself over to the devil's temptation. And so his heart was already set on betrayal. And Jesus was fully aware of who he was and what his plans were. He was going to go to the cross under his own volition. He had come from God, and he was going to be returning to the Father's side in heaven. And so now with the dinner already set, I don't think the meal had been served yet. I think it was kind of set. And knowing what was already taking place in Judas's heart and the devil's plans, the stage is set now where we see Jesus do something. 
he gets up from the table. He takes off his outer garments and he ties a towel around his waist. So if you were just to look at him, you would think that he, like if it was to do it today, it would be somebody like taking off their jacket, taking off their tie, you know, and dressing up in what a slave would wear, raggedy clothes. So if you were just to look at this, you would have seen what was taking place here. And if you were to stop the scene right now, this would already be shocking enough. How often do you see a person in a high position do something like this without cameras around? Right? I mean, we see this thing all the time from our leaders and politicians. They go for, you know, like a work day with a common man. And so they put on their khakis, you know, and their windbreaker and take off their tie and loosen, you know. They, and they, they go to do an act of service. And we know that it's all for show. I've seen this even here locally with somebody running for Swiss World Council who videoed themselves picking up trash. And I'm like, did that person do that before the election? Did they do it after the election? No. I used to pick up trash every month here and with a group of people. And I'm like, why are you doing it just to record? You know, you record yourself. You know? Um, and it's, it's shocking to even think that somebody would do this kind of thing, that somebody would, would take that form who isn't in a place to serve other people. One of my favorite musicians from back in the 90s was Rich Mullins, who died 25 years ago, a couple weeks ago. And Rich was a guy who was actually from the state of Indiana, and he always took a vow of poverty. But back in the 80s and 90s, he wrote songs that you still know today, like Awesome God. And he was, because his songs that he wrote were done by the biggest artists at the time. And I remember once back in college, back in the 90s, I heard a story that Rich one time, because I was a big fan of him, that he went to one of these big, you know how they give out awards? And it's not even just the non-Christian world, you know, the, the Dove Awards, and they get all dressed up, and they get a big fancy place, and they serve a big fancy dinner. And I heard that Rich went to this meal, and I could see him doing this because I saw him once in person, in concert, and what he wore, it, he was not dressed like everybody else. And the story is that he went to this meal, and that... Everybody else is going through the line, right, getting served. And what he did was he, like, just put on an apron and got behind the serving line and started serving all these big wigs from the industry, and nobody noticed it was him. Nobody looked up and said, like, oh, like, you're Rich Mullins. Like, you're one of the biggest stars getting all the awards, and here he is serving people. But nobody took the time to even look at the ser people who were serving them. But that's just how Rich was. He left his... His, all of the money behind and went and served on an Indian reservation out west and just serving the poorest people in our community because he thought that's in our world because he's like, that's what we are called to do. That's where the heart of Christ is, is in service. And Jesus wasn't trying to pretend like he was a servant to, to win favor with the crowds. He wasn't videoing himself for Facebook. Jesus was, he was actually taking the heart of a servant because that's what he came to do. He even said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the crowds weren't there at the time. He had his crowds in John 12 and before, but John 13, the public ministry is done. So all he has now in this room is him and his 12 followers. That's it. And there's nobody else that's going around. There's nobody he's trying to impress. And we read why he dressed like, why he took that dress here in the next couple of verses. And these details in verse 4, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, all of those like step by step by step things. I mean, it's almost like John, who's writing this, like even like 40 years later, he remembers this. I mean, this is seared into his mind, the step by step by step action that Jesus took at that dinner. 
was something that he was very deliberate in recording what took place here. And the disciples, what they did was they were around this U-shaped table. Imagine like one of our folding tables and you put them in a U-shape and they're low to the ground and they're all like getting ready to eat. And so they would recline on, on cushions on their left arm and they would reach with their right arm to the food that was in the middle of the table so that you were all kind of like at an angle to the table. And their feet were stretched out behind their bodies and all of a sudden Jesus gets up from that prime position that was at the very head of the table, right in the center of the U. And he gets up and they're getting ready to eat or starting to you know, drink and talk and stuff. And Jesus changes what he's wearing, pours the stuff, the water into a basin, and then he goes to the first person at the end of the table. He takes, bends over onto his knees. He unties their sandals. And then he starts to dip their feet in the water and wash their feet, rubbing the dirt off of them and drying their feet with a towel. I mean, just think about that for a second. Like, how humbling is it if you ever had to, like, bend over and help somebody else with their shoes, right? It's very humbling. Now imagine what it was like for Jesus to go through those actions. Because in ancient times, everybody wore sandals. And most of the roads were made of dirt. And not only that, but they shared the roads with all the animals. So you can imagine how disgusting people's feet would get. Today we talk about the need to wash your hands before you eat. Well, back then, a person's feet was so dirty that generally when you went to somebody's house or went to a formal dinner in particular, there would be a servant to do the foot washing. And at a meal like this, with this many people, you know, it was something that there was generally a servant there to wash the feet. But it wasn't a, there weren't any servants. It was just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And usually the person that did the feet washing, because it was so disgusting and because it was so humbling to a person and humiliating, really, it was really the lowest servant's job to do it. It's kind of like whenever you get a new job and you're the low man on the totem pole, so you've got to do all the grunt work. Well, washing other people's feet was like grunt work. And so what we see that Jesus is doing here is a picture, really, of the reality, the spiritual reality that took place whenever Jesus, the Son of God, before he was named Jesus, when he was the Son of God, eternally existing in heaven, with all the glories and the riches of heaven, he left heaven and came to earth. You know, his actions there were also kind of written about in the same way in Philippians chapter 2. And we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, this Again, this description of what we call the humiliation of Christ. In verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when God left, God the Son left heaven and came to this earth by being born as a human being, he condescended, con meaning with and descend, he descended from heaven to be with us. He left the glories of heaven to live here on earth. You know, there's a, an ad campaign, maybe you've seen it, if you've had the uh, unfortunateness of watching a Steelers game, I think I saw it last time, but it's on all the, the big shows that people are watching. Somebody's putting a lot of money into this campaign called 
He gets us. Have you seen this? It's very good, high-quality advertisements. In fact, the first time I saw it, I thought, this must be the Mormon church or something. I mean, because somebody is doing a really good job, and we know evangelical Christians don't usually put out great material like that. And I was just like, that is really good. I thought, so I went to the website, and I started looking around, you know, and the point is, what they're doing is they're trying to draw people to Christ by showing that Jesus gets us, that he gets us. And I think those, I said, like, they're really great. The website is well done. The, the TV commercials are really well done. And they really do a great job of showing the humanity of Jesus. But the problem is, is if you go to the website, you will not find anything about the divinity of Christ on there which I think is very, very sad. In fact, you will find this. They actually said on the website, some people or some believe Jesus lived a perfect life. For others, that's a stretch. Either way, as we searched for themes to share, it became apparent to us that Jesus set a high bar for himself and for others. And I read that, I'm like, wait a second. Either way, there's no question. Jesus did live a perfect life. He was God in the flesh. And that really matters. It's because he was perfect that makes his humbling so amazing. Right? When he came in the flesh, Jesus didn't just set aside his deity. He, he set aside his dignity. He emptied himself of the glory that he enjoyed with his Father in heaven. He, he laid aside his prerogatives as the second person of the Trinity, and he came to earth. For the sake of his people, he descended he left his glory and clothed in the form of human likeness, became like us. And so it wasn't that he wasn't God. He was truly God on earth. And that's what he was showing through his actions here, you know, um, which makes sense that, that the height that Jesus came from, and even on earth, you know, he was from humble beginnings, but he became a rabbi, a, a traveling rabbi, a teacher. And he was held in such high regard by at least his disciples here that you can see when he gets to Peter, in verse 6, Peter says, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? The emphasis is on the you there. Do you wash my feet? Not that my feet don't need washed, but you are going to be the one that does this? And Jesus said that he knew that, Peter, you're not going to understand now. Later you will, in a week. you know. And even 45 days after this or so, whenever the Holy Spirit gives you understanding, you're going to understand a lot better. But Peter objected still in verse 8 and says, you shall never wash my feet. And I get where Peter is coming from here. I mean, have you ever have somebody in your life that you just have a ton of respect for? I think of my dad or my grandpa when he was alive. Now, who do you think of when you say, I mean, this person is like, I have so much respect for this person. Now imagine that person doing the most humiliating task you can imagine. If you were in the room, you would stop him, wouldn't you? You'd be like, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. I'm going to do that. You know, I respect you too much. You are not going to do that. And that's what Peter does. He just can't believe what's happening. He's beside himself and says, no, stop. But Jesus says, no, Peter, you have to let me do this or you have no part in me. And that is this picture of the spiritual reality that is about to take place. And that's why that campaign, he gets us, why I don't like it, because it says... Jesus set a high bar for himself and for others. No, the bar is impossibly high. <laughs> it's impossibly high, but Jesus clears it, and then he puts us on the back on his back and clears it again with us, right? Spiritual, spiritually speaking, 
Jesus is about to do something on the cross that no one could do. He's about to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And if we can't humble ourselves before Jesus, then we will never be clean. We have to recognize that we can't be clean without the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have to give up on our own efforts of self-righteousness and our own efforts of trying to make ourselves clean and realize that our righteousness rests on the righteousness of Christ. We bring nothing to our salvation except our sins, which is why we need a Savior like Jesus. And what does Peter do? He, he swings too far in the other direction, doesn't he? All right, fine, just wash all of me. I love Peter's reaction. <laughs> and Jesus says to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. That is completely clean. I think Jesus is saying here, like, hey, you know, if you are washed by me, your sins are totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. You are declared not guilty. So all the sins you've done in the past and all the sins you are doing today and all the sins you're going to do tomorrow, that is not going to be held against you if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to... In fact, you can't pay it back. There's not enough good you can do in the world to try to pay back your sinful nature and all the sins you've already committed. So we humble ourselves before him and realize that just one touch from Jesus Christ makes us totally clean. But the penalty and the full power of our sin is, is no longer with us. Yes, there's still that lingering presence of sin. It can kind of like be a pest in our lives, right? And being a Christian doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that we are forgiven. And it means that we can go to him for forgiveness anytime and know that he will give it. And it means that we have that promise that one day we will be made perfect when we see him face to face. And Jesus does warn right away that one of them would betray him. In verse 10, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you, because he knew. He knew that there was a betrayer in the room. He knew what was going on in the heart of Judas and again, what's, what's amazing is that he still washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine knowing that you are going to be betrayed by a close friend and yet you still stoop to your knees and wash his dirty feet? What amazing love that God has shown to us. He does it. He washes his feet and shows love to them. You know, when Jesus was done, it says in verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and says to them, so he goes, and again, that's kind of like a picture of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, where it says that God is going to elevate him after the resurrection. He's going to elevate him to the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what we see here is like that, that same language, that after Jesus was done with the work of his humiliation, he took his place again at the table, just like he's going to take his place at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then he says, do you understand what I have done for you? Well, he just told Peter, you don't fully understand, right? Because I imagine right now there's probably some blank stares looking at him. So he explains in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done for you. 
And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so what we have here is that actual thing that's taking place. So you have, like I said, there's like a double meaning in this passage. You have the, the spiritual reality that Jesus is going to wash us clean from our sins from the, by dying on the cross for us, taking our place. But then you have that actual, like, actual thing that's taking place where he says, this is a command. This is a challenge from Jesus. And this is him saying, like, this is what you ought to do. And I, I don't know if there's any other place. I, I love this here because this is very clearly, we see the relationship between the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture. The imperatives of Scripture are the things that we ought to do, what you should do. You know, those commands in Scripture where it says, do this, don't do this, right? This is what I'm talking about here. Jesus tells his disciples to wash each other's feet. Don't sit there and think that somebody else is going to do it. Don't sit there and say, well, who hired the servant? How come our feet are still dirty? Who's bringing the food out? Who brought the drinks? What's going on here? Don't sit there and do that. Jesus is basically saying, this is your command. I'm telling you, don't wait for somebody else. Get up and do it, first of all. So there is that clear directive from Jesus. However, the imperative to wash one another's feet flows out of the indicative of what Jesus has already done for us. He, what he's already done for us. It's already done. And this is what makes obedience possible instead of just crushing. This is why we can follow in obedience instead of just saying, go work harder, which really doesn't get you anywhere. Going back to that idea of that he gets us at, they say, Jesus set a high bar for himself and for others. And I, you know, I respond, yeah, he did. He was perfect. So how could I even try that? Why would I even want to attempt that? Right? Why would I want to follow in that, those footsteps? I mean, imagine the scene around the dinner table. No volunteer is getting up to wash the feet, of course. And what if Jesus, instead of doing what he did, what if he says, okay, I need a volunteer. Who wants to be the foot washer? Could you imagine what they're going to say? Oh, come on. Do it. Do it. I did it last time. Not again. What if Jesus said, hey, look, I'm the teacher. Stop complaining. Sorry, Jesus. All right, and Jesus finally just says, Nathaniel, he's voluntold. Nathaniel, you're doing it. If that's how it went, would, he, would it, the job have gotten done? Yeah. If he said, I'm the teacher, I'm the master, you call me Lord, you call me teacher, you call me master, do what I tell you to do. Would it have worked in the moment? Yes. Would lives have been changed? No. But Jesus knew what was coming. So with the cross before him, he demonstrated the enormity of his love, what he was about to do by showing him, by showing them that the lowliest job that anyone could ever imagine was going to be done by him. That he was going to, to set the example and show them that he is not telling us like he is leading the way. He's the one doing it for us. He was above them. They were below them. But he says, follow my pattern, follow my example. You know, Peter picked up on this theme when he wrote his letter in 1 Peter 2.21. He said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And so the best part is, is Jesus sets the example and then he gives us the ability to serve him. Because now we know that, you know, we don't have to. We can wash other disciples' feet because Christ has washed our feet first. 
We can serve others because we have been served by Christ first. We can forgive people because we know that we have been forgiven by him first. We can love other people first because we know that we can only love because he first loved us. How freeing is that? That's amazing motivation to know that Jesus washes us totally clean and he calls us to follow his example in humble service to others. And then he ends with this, verse 17, by saying, you know what you're going to get from this is happiness. Blessed are you. You know them, now blessed are you if you do them. And the word blessed, there's two different ways that the New Testament uses that word. And the way he uses it here is the same as the Sermon on the Mount, as in happiness. Like, this is where your joy comes from. And it is so joyful and freeing to know that you can serve somebody else without expecting something in return. You can love somebody else without expecting something in return. You know that you can offer forgiveness because you are the greatest of all sinners. That's what Paul said. I am the greatest of all sinners. And if you know how much you've been forgiven, you can forgive somebody else. And Jesus promises us that this is where true joy comes from in serving other people. We talk about at this church gospel-fueled service. And I've always said, like, you know, like when I try to serve out of my own effort, I just run out, you know. Either I get crushed or I just get lose hope. I just want to give up. But knowing that everything I have, I already, everything I need, I already have in Christ, that's what makes me want to love and serve other people. And a couple of things to keep in mind when we're talking about this, um, this command that Jesus gives. It's follow my example, he says. First of all, keep in mind that serving others is not a form of manipulation. Don't sit here and think, oh, you know what? Jesus did have some good results with that. I think I'll try that technique. You know what I mean? You know why? Because if you're starting to be phony, people are going to see through it. People are going to see through it. It might, And again, you could be commanding and it might work. You could try to be phony and you're eventually going to be found out. So it doesn't work like that. Secondly, humility and service to one another should be the mark of true Christian community. And so this is the attitude that we want to have as a church together. And so for this to happen, we have to be willing to be served as well, not just do the serving. I think sometimes we can be like Peter, who says, no, 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 I don't need your help. You know, I'll be a part of this church, but nobody's going to help me with anything, right? And you know what that is sometimes, especially if you know that you need help in some way, is what was Peter's problem? It was pride. It was pride. I don't want anybody to think that I have dirty feet. Well, guess what? You have dirty feet. All right? And we all do. And we all could use help from time to time. And so the, the phrase is swallow your pride, right? When you need help, ask for help. Let other people serve you. I know, I'm sure it was humbling for the disciples to have their feet washed. I'm sure it was life-changing for them. And if you've ever been served in, in a way like this, it could be life-changing as well. You know, there are some Christian groups that think that, like, not only with the Lord's Supper and baptism, we believe those are the two commandments that the Christ gave to the church. Some people say foot washing is one of those things. I don't see it in Scripture. And I've actually one time was part of a, a foot washing type of service. And it wasn't in a church service per se. It was at a Christian camp when I was in high school. And what we did was, like, one evening, you know how, if you've ever been to church camp before, you know they do special things with the kids. And one of the times we were sitting in circles with our cabins, and they, the leaders of the camp said, like, 
this is what we're going to do. And so what we did was, like, you, you did the same thing. You know, everybody took off their shoes and socks, and we were in a circle, and the one person washed the feet of the person beside them, and the other person washed the feet of the person beside them. And I'll tell you, there was a guy in my cabin, and the first person who did the foot washing, you know who it was? It was the counselor. And our counselor was our youth leader, a person that we all respect and we all looked up to. And so it's all quiet, you know, it's dark in the room. And then all of a sudden our leader gets up and he goes and he gets a pitcher and he gets a big bowl and a towel and he pours the water. And then as he took my friend's foot and put it in the water, my friend just started crying. I mean, almost like uncontrollably, just crying, crying, crying. Because to see somebody like that you look up to, that you respect, that you admire, that you learn from, a godly person like that, to kneel before you, and to take your feet that you've been walking around at church camp on dusty roads and dip them in the water. And to have that done, so then that person washed the other person's feet and we run around the circle. And I remember going through that and thinking like, what a small, tiny taste of like what the disciples went through when Jesus did that for them. And I still remember it. I mean, it is burned into my mind. And I'm sure the disciples had the same thing. And you know what? I can do the, the disgusting job, you know? I can. I mean, I. It's fine with me because I know that I don't deserve to be forgiven of my sins. I did not deserve to be forgiven of my sins, but I am a great sinner. But I have a great Savior, and He went a, an amazing distance. He wasn't just a good person who set a high example, but He was God in the flesh, who came to the earth, showed that He was a servant, demonstrated it in humbleness by washing his disciples' feet and then went to the cross and paid the penalty for my sins and then rose again in victory. So let us be people who are willing to serve others because Jesus laid down his life. We can humbly lay down our life in service to others. And those who give themselves in service to others, Jesus says, will experience joy, the joy of the Lord. Let us love and serve one another.